you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm, I'm really excited to... Uh speak with my guest, you know, about when John Oates and I started working on his memoir, which is now about six years ago, back in 2014. As a result, I would go to a lot of Hall and Oates shows because John and I would be working, you know, on the road in a variety of places. And so I got to enjoy the band um, many nights. And and one thing, when you go see Daryl Hall and John Oates, the band really is part of the show. I mean, it's um, everyone kind of plays a very interesting part. Everyone's kind of like their own character behind, you know, the two leading characters, Daryl and John. And those would include Elliot Lewis on the keyboards, Clyde Jones on the bass, Brian Dunn on the drums, Shane Terrio on guitar. Everyone sings, by the way, too. Uh, Charlie Deshant, Mr. Casual on the saxophone and a variety of other things. And then a guy named Porter Carroll Jr., who I first met. Um, actually, the first night, John and I were working together in Las Vegas, and uh, Porter and I started talking and had a lot of uh, sort of sports interests, you know, both being from New York in common. And I knew about Porter. Porter has, uh, in addition to being a percussionist and vocalist with the, the Daryl Hall and John Oates Band, has a very illustrious career behind him and also presently as, as a solo artist. We're going to talk about all of these things today. I want to welcome uh, Porter Carroll Jr. today. Porter, how are you, man? Chris, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I figured you and I have had so many great conversations over the years. When I think about guests for this show, I, you know, those are conversations I want to share with people. And, and having had the, the, the privilege to watch you perform, not just with Hall & Oates, but also on your own, you know, I, there's always something so special about what you do. I want to talk about those things. Um, but, you know, you mentioned to me just yesterday, Porter, it's, it's going on nine years now. You've been in this particular band, which is, which is pretty amazing. Speaking of moments, do you remember the moment that you found out this was going to be your destiny for a while, that you were going to join this band? Oh, my God. You got, we have time? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, really, I was um, actually, I had gotten out of the business for a number of years, and I had gotten into the advertising world. And sadly, during the 08 recession, I was downsized from the Gannett Corporation, you know, a huge publishing corporation. And I was having a pretty nice career there and was actually looking forward to retiring from there. Uh, but, of course, you know, I was downsized. And, you know, like everybody else at that time and like they are today, sadly, uh, mm -hmm. I was looking for work. Uh, I was not involved in music at all. Uh, and anyway, I was really pretty much at the end of my rope. I was actually pretty scared. I didn't know what was, which way my life was going to go. And then, you know, you have these things on Facebook where it says people you may know. Mm -hmm. I, re I reluctantly joined Facebook. <laughs> I was a little <laughs> older. I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. You know, for whatever, you know, just, just, you know, just resistant. But anyway, my nephews and everybody were like, no, you got to get on. You got to do this. You got to do this. And I was like, ah, whatever. So anyway, I, I kind of, you know, I'm thumbing my way through it. And I see a face on people you may know. And I clicked on it. And sure enough, I got a response from the guy. And I'd been hearing, at the time, I was on unemployment. And they said, hey, you got you to gotta have lunches with folks. You got to do this. You got to do that. Even though you're hurting, you, gotta, you, gotta, you have to network. So anyway, I said, all right. I'm going to click on this face and I'm going to invite this guy to lunch because we used to, you know, we used to hang out. Anyway, I click on it. He gets back to me. We set up a lunch. 
And we go back to this place where we used to hang out a whole bit, and it was great reconnecting after about, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Turns out it's Elliot Lewis from Hall and Oates. So he's telling me what he's doing. I really didn't know what was going on. And then he said, man, I'm doing this show, the TV show now. We've got this thing going on. I said, oh, that's great, man. Congratulations. All right, so we end that. This reconnect. So six months later, I'm really wondering what's going on with my life. <laughs> and sure enough, I get a Facebook message saying, any interest in H&O and LFDH, long shot, percussionist? For me, it was like I, I was looking at Greek. I didn't know what it was. It was acronyms all over the place. I look back right now. <laughs> it's no but at the time, it looked like it was upside down. <laughs> so I said, wait a minute. I, 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 I'm like, what is this? What is Elliot saying? I said, uh-oh. He's asking me if I want to be a percussionist in Daryl Hall's band, and I didn't know what LSDH was. So anyway, I said, Elliot gets up about 10. I think I'll, I'll wait. It was about mm, 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> I don't know. Somewhere around 8.30, I have to forget that. I'm going to call. That must have been <laughs> a long couple of hours it waiting for him to get up. long, <laughs> long, long hour, right? So I called him. I said, oh, what's going on? He said, man, you got any interest in doing this? I said, yeah. yeah I get, but you got to let everybody know I'm not a percussionist. So he said, man, just, just, just hold on for a second. So he called me right back in about five minutes. Apparently, Daryl said, hey, man, he can make the transition. I said, oh, okay. What do you want me to do? So they said, hey, in a couple of days, come on up to Daryl's place. I said, okay, sure. And let it go with that. Oh, and then, oh, then I get another call. I said, hey, you got anything you could put on, put on you know, that Daryl could hear? So I, I you know, I, I don't know what happened. I can't remember exactly what happened. But anyway, all the... The coast was clear for me to come and see Daryl in a couple of days. So I'm sorry for this being a long story. No, no, please. It's a moment, man. (laughs) Moments take time to lay out. (laughs) Right. So anyway, um, all of a sudden, all this music starts coming to me via email. I'm like, hmm, I don't recognize anything. But I said, you know what? I better listen to this. So I studied for this thing like I was studying for the SATs. So it was about six songs. Again, I didn't know what it was. So I hear the songs, you know, I get familiar with it. Two days go by. I, Elliot and I, we meet uh, right at, well, in New York, it's 684, which turns into Route, two, route, route 22, not, not 222, but 22. And mm-hmm. we take this long, long ride, man. I was like, are we going to Canada? Where are we going? <laughs> I, I grew up up there. I know right what you're talking about. You know, what I, that's why I brought it up, because I know you know. I mean, and if you're coming at, at Brewster, New York, going into Armenia, what the hell? It was about an hour and a half, <laughs> which is like 40 minutes. And, and, and I've already driven about 40 minutes anyway to get to, to meet Elliot. So I'm like, where are we going? I actually, I remember actually going past Wingdale. I remember my father used to laugh. He said, man, you know, if you're not careful, we're going to send you to Wingdale, you know. I was like, oh, there it is over there. I mean, it was clear. Anyway, I finally get up to this, you know, the huge estate that everybody knows about, you know, uh, from, the, from the television show. And I'm like, okay. Elliot says, yeah, come on in. It's very casual, very laid back. And I walk in, and I'm like, oh, wow. That, that's, I, I just met Brian Dunn. I said, you're in the band? He said, yeah. And I, and I saw Clyde Jones. I said, you're in the band? He said, yeah. And my dear friend, I knew, I knew from years ago, 
Um, I was in on the decision to bring him in to be a side guitar player for Atlantic Star back in the 80s. I think we took him on his first tour was Paul Pesco. Paul Pesco was, you know, the musical director. So I knew three guys in the room. And they said, hey, man, um, there's, a, there's a setup right over there. I said, setup? What are you talking about? I'm just here to talk with Daryl, you know. They're like, no, man, let's go over there. I said, okay. So I go over and I just start playing around with it. I hadn't touched a percussion instrument since I was in high school, and that was back there in the Flintstones. So I, you know, I remember the room cleared out. And then this guy walked by and said, sounds like the Latin Quarter's in here to me. I was like, ooh, I must be doing something right. So then, I don't know, maybe a few minutes go by, and everybody comes back into the room, and then this tall guy with these glasses and the blonde hair walks by. I said, oh, there he goes. He walks right by me. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then he says, hey, let's play such and such a song. And uh, so I was like, all right. So, boom, it, hit, it was like gangbusters. <laughs> when the guy said the first note, it was, I mean, it was like, you know, when you hold your hat kind of thing, you remember, those remember when you play, what, what, when what you, were you playing? You remember? It was one of those songs that was sent to me via email that I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. It was not a hall note song. No, okay. I wasn't familiar with it at all. It was sort of on the reggae side. Right. Mm -hmm. and so I just, I said, well, I'll just wing it. I'll just start playing. So we go through 20 minutes of these, of this material. Um, that, you know, like I said, I, I don't know anything about. Daryl hasn't said anything other than, you know, calling out the songs. And so we, we finish about 20 minutes. And then he walks over to me. I mean, he's deadpan. And he walks up, he says, hey, you okay with this? I kind of deadpan him back. I, you know, I, I come from a neighborhood too. <laughs> but I'm okay with it if you're okay with it. He's, then he breaks into a smile and says, Welcome to the band, man. We're going to get ready to start taping. A group called Dirty Heads is coming in, man, from Southern California, man. Welcome. They're not only from Southern California. They're from right here in Huntington Beach where I'm sitting. Uh, I know those guys. They're great guys. And I remember how excited they were. I, I didn't know that was your first show. That was my first show. Again, I'm so sorry for taking such a long time. No, man, that's amazing. But, that, that's a great story. Porter, this is about moments. I mean, when I hear something yeah, like that, that's... I, you know, again, and, and had you not been looking on social media, it's all about the moment, the moment you see Elliot's name, the moment you connect with him, the moment you reach out. And here you are nine years in with this incredible gig that's taking you around the world. And again, it, what always gets me, though, is when, when I first met you and John Oates said to me, hey, you got to meet the guys of the band. He goes, you're going to love uh, Porter. He says he's uh, a he's a huge sports fan. He says, but he was also, you know, one of the founding members of Atlantic Star. And I said, well, wow. I said, that was like one of my favorite bands in the early 80s, you know, and, oh. and for people that don't know, you know, Porter, that you it's a whole other conversation we can have and we will about Atlantic Star. And, and right. again, a seminal band in the early 80s that, that did really I thought was groundbreaking that had, again, great kind of neighborhood family and friends vibe to it. You know, yes, it there was, were a lot of you and, and, and you did a lot. And I, I wonder sometimes. You know, uh, when you think about Atlantic Star today, you know, what, what, what happened? Give us a little synopsis of that, because, again, that's a great story in music. And, uh, and the records hold up beautifully. They, they were groundbreaking in a lot of ways, so respected, critically, artistically, in every way. What are your memories about Atlantic Star when you look back today? Boy, uh, we, we need about three hours. But anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll start with this one. <laughs> um, well, uh, let's see. 
It started with this little, I had a band. Well, wait a minute. You know what? I want to do something. Porter, here's the deal. I want to yeah. do something. While yeah. you're thinking about that, I want to read something, okay. if I may. Because oh, recently, okay. sure. when little Richard passed away, you wrote a really beautiful passage that you shared on social media about a moment that you had with him that goes back to the beginning of Atlantic Star. And I don't want to read the whole piece because it deserves to live as its own, I think, in print at some point. But I, par- I want to take a couple of paragraphs out that I thought were really sure. wonderful. They get back. You, you paint the picture of this story where the band, um, you're not even called Atlantic Star yet, right? You're called New Band. And you arrive in L.A. in the mid-70s from New York City. You're rehearsing at SIR in Hollywood where everybody played. And and you you just miss out seeing Sly Stone that night who's in the studio, you know, looking at some new gear. So that's kind of a missed opportunity. But then here's, here's what you wrote. On a break, Wayne Lewis, Clifford Archer, and I ventured down the hallway and hesitantly poked our heads into a slamming rock and roll rehearsal. We tiptoed in, only to be greeted by this tall, really handsome, brown-skinned, clog-wearing, huge pompadour do having man we all knew. Yep, it was him, Little Richard himself. I remember looking up at him. This man was not small. My first thought was, where did the little come from? Before we knew it, he came over, kindly said hello, and then touched the top of our heads with a soft, closed fist and blessed us. He said in that famous voice, through the iconic smile under the razor-sharp mustache, one at a time, I'm going to bless you and wish you a great career. And then he allowed us to stay and watch. We stayed for the length of our break and all but ran back to our session to tell everyone. And then you closed with, it still amazes me that we encountered this particular international groundbreaker, this full out ass kicker in his very private space within days of our arrival. Here's a true icon, yet somehow he was a complete gentleman to Wayne, Clifford and me. It's like it set a tone for our ascent. Within just 18 short months, we reached our target and signed a major recording contract with Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss's A&M Records, the largest independent recording company in the world at that time. We were just kids. And thinking about it, maybe we were blessed that evening. It was at least a positive beginning. And there's more to the story. But that's the beginning. So so um, we're going to we, we're gonna take a break in just a minute here. But I want you to think about this. Because, Porter, that's, a, that's really a hell of a way to be anointed and kind of baptized into the business, right? By a little Richard himself. <laughs> And, and wow. from there, um, like you say, things take off. So what we're going to do is take a quick break. I'm talking with Porter Carroll Jr. Um, of Daryl Hall and John Oates group of Atlantic Star. It was on Solo Career, which we're going to talk about. I'm Chris Epting. This is The Moment. We'll be back in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Talking with Porter Carroll Jr. of uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates fame. He's been in the band for nine years now. Atlantic stars on solo career, really talented um, singer, songwriter, and all that. Porter, we were just talking before the break about this moment with Little Richard in LA in the mid 70s and how that kind of the ascent begins right after that. You fasten your seatbelts and then it's off on the Atlantic Star ride, right? Right. Yes. That, um, <laughs> you know, after, I don't know, um, that was put together um, in my mother's house, actually. Um, I was about 16. I remember asking. The first, the original two men, the bass player, Clifford Archer was my childhood friend. I mean, we were next door neighbors. And uh, Sharon, my cousin, she lived upstairs in this small apartment building that we lived, right, um, in, in Greenberg, New York. And uh, so the seeds were planted very, very early. But it really came together uh, when I was like 16 uh, and, um, at Woodlands High School in, in, uh, in Hartsdale, New York. And um, we knocked on doors. Uh, from 1970 to 1975, we just could not break through. As a matter of fact, we had a completely different style. We were kind of, I hate to say it this way, we were sort of like the black Chicago. You know, um, we had, I get it, was, it. it was a lot of socially conscious stuff. It was, um, you know, like what CTA was doing at that time, you know, how music was in, in the seventies. It was a very broad based lyrically. And, Absolutely. uh, we had, we had a, we had a three piece horn section that was, it was bringing it. We had great guitar players. Um, you know, it was a completely different thing, but we, it was starting to, you know, it was starting to turn into the disc. It was the disco era was coming and we were feeling the pressure and getting older. And some guys were starting families. It was like feeling the pressure that I think we're going to have to go back and play some commercial music. I think, you know, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, we got a tip, um, from actually my mother worked in someone's home who had a contact at, at April Blackwood music, uh, in, in Blackrock, uh, in the CBS publishing arm, uh, a friend of ours, Glenn Friedman was working there. Um, and he, uh, he got transferred to Los Angeles, and one day he called us and said, "Hey, would you guys be interested in doing uh, the Spinner's 20th anniversary party at Beverly Hills Hotel? I got a thousand bucks, man, for you guys to do the gig." We're like, "Really?" <laughs> we were like Jed Clampett and his family, we loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly. I mean, really? I mean, it was uh, you know, it literally took a van out there. Uh, I was fortunate enough. I did the advance work on the gig. I said I learned that that's called the advance work. I was flown out uh, myself and Duke Jones. We went out and we did some advance work and got everything together. And the band drove in after breaking down. I think it was in Colorado. The band broke down in Colorado. They got everything together. So the rest of the guys came out. 
we got everything together, and boom, we go into this huge party uh, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we weren't in town more than a week. Um, and, I mean, everybody was there. Rita Franklin was there. Uh, Ahmed Erdogan was in the front row. I mean, you name it. Red Fox. It was like the who's who of Atlantic Records and really of, of, of show business at that time. And we just knew <laughs> we had hit the jackpot. We played like crazy, and the night was over, and nobody said anything. It was gig over. <laughs> it was done. <laughs> nobody said a peep. <laughs> it was like, okay. All right, so now what do we do? We had planned on being in, in Los Angeles for two weeks. We figured we'd go out for two weeks, get a record deal, and then come on home. No. So we decided, you know, we're here. We we got to try and do something with this. And like I said, New York was changing. The whole disco thing was coming. And at the time, the the country was more the music was more regional. And still, at the, it was at the tail end of the regional thing. Right, so, right, you know, right. It, disco had not hit Los Angeles. They were really concentrating on the funk thing. So we said, you know what? Uh, we got a, we got a couple of rooms at the legendary Tropicana Hotel. And. Um, our manager at the time, he got us a couple of gigs in some of the worst nightclubs in Los Angeles, in Gardena. And like, wow, where, where, where are we, you know? <laughs> and we wound up working with, I think our first gig, we had like, today they call it a residency. We did a three-week run with the great Rudy Ray Moore. Really? Yeah, Eddie Murphy just did the movie? Yeah. Absolute Dolomite. Dolomite. We opened for him for three weeks in a, in a small club that Leroy and Skillet had that used to come on the Red Fox show. Uh, and Aunt Esther and all, they would all come into this club. And we were doing this thing with them. And he would talk about us like dogs. I mean, we, we just became a part of the act. You know, he, just, he would slam us. So when I saw the movie uh, that Eddie just did, I was like, man, it was, he nailed it. He was, it was so... I mean, it, it, I thought it was brilliant. It was like, I thought it was it absolutely was, it was brilliant. brilliant. And we were a tiny part of that. And we grew out of that. And then finally we went down and we, we got another gig down and um, right across from, uh, from Disney World. It was a place called Alien Smith and Jones in Santa Ana. And we, we went down there. And one day, we, as we were doing the audition, we saw these. Well, there were two things. It was a guy that. It, it turned into, I'm trying to make the long story short, we wound up meeting a guy who turned into the bus boys. His name was uh, Brian, Brian O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Years later, he, he, he fronted the bus boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about Eddie Murphy. Of course. And they, they, they were in... And there was an uh, L.A. band, you know, and, and they introduced us to this production company. And the musical director for this, uh, this production company is a guy named Ron Ransifer. And Ronnie was the original keyboard player for the Jackson Five. And Ronnie said, "Now I think you guys got it, you know." And he said, "You know, let me bring you in the studio." And he he caught a he said he re he revamped our whole thing because, like I said, we were coming out of this kind of Chicagoish blood, sweat, and tears thing. And he took it and really concentrated on the vocal thing. I remember him saying, he said, man, you guys can play behind, though, but your singing thing is, I think that's going to be your, your thing. So he, he, we put together, um, we put together about, I don't know, seven or eight songs. And we felt so good about it. We thought it was going to be our first album. And uh, I remember it was done during 
the first run of Roots on television. I remember I never saw it because at the time there were no VCRs. <laughs> and everybody was talking about Roots and Roots, and we were in the studio. Right? So anyway, we get all of that together, and our, our, our manager um, um, made a list. He made a list of all the record companies, you know, from A to Z, literally. Well, we never got out of the A's. <laughs> we, got, we got a call to go into A&M, and it took, I think our first, our first audition was at, at FIR um, with a guy named Barry Corkin. And apparently we did well with that. And then he put us, uh, we had another audition with Kip Cohen, the great Kip Cohen, A&R man. And then the last one, they brought us to the Charlie Chaplin lot, you know, where A&M was on, um, on, uh, on La Brea. Mm-hmm. And they bring us into this gigantic room. Uh, and it turns out it was the soundstage where they made all the Keystone Cops. Right. Um, and That's the original, yeah, the original Chaplin the Studios original, there. The Chaplin today Studios. it's Henson, yeah. I believe. Yes, today, right. And um, so they set us up on one end of the of the um, of the soundstage. I mean, this room is completely empty. And I remember, we, we, you know, and it was the first time we ever had a full blown, you know, sound system. I remember hitting my bass drum, and it's like boom, and it's like whoa. You know, I had to get used to that really fast. You know? So anyway. In the back of the room, this guy comes in, just walks in. He doesn't say anything. He just kind of, you know, just says, okay, guys, let's begin. I got the, uh, signals with his hand. And we went into a half an hour set. I mean, again, it was like being shot out of a cannon. We, again, I, I, forgive my French, but we played like Lyell. <laughs> we played like <laughs> ass off, you know. Uh, it was, it, I felt like it was a great audition. And then he, he just went away. And we so now we just we walked out of out of the soundstage and we're standing in front of the thing. I remember looking to my right and I was like, "Oh God, that's Quincy Jones's office right there." I mean, literally, could, you could touch it. <laughs> and it's like, "What's going to happen with us?" I don't know. Nobody's saying anything. And then finally, this woman with this—I'll never forget the the color of her hair was like it was like a like cranberry red. And she came a very curly hair. And she came down. She says, "Hey guys, congratulations." You got a five-year exclusive deal with A&M Records. Welcome. I was like, whoa. Another one? You're talking about a moment, Chris. It was like... Uh, that, gave, yeah, that gave me goosebumps, man. Again, it's... it's it's Because, again, I think the Atlantic Star story, It's I think it's one of the great untold stories in music. I really do. You know, we, I, when you, ever, you, know, you watch all these Netflix shows, right? About yeah. these docuseries, about different things. I know the, the drama and what happens from this point on within the band is just epic. I mean, it goes on and on. And I know there are so many personalities and so many scenarios and so many ups yeah. and downs. But it really is, you know, from that moment on, once you start recording for A and M, I know your world changes. All your worlds change, but it's uh, but it's a real roller coaster ride, right? Oh, it, it's a real roller coaster ride, and I and I have I have to um, I have to put this in. I remember them asking. They asked me, uh, "Who do you want to produce you?" And I said, "James Carmichael." And I remember it was like, "What?" James Carmichael, absolutely. That's the guy that did uh, Three Times a Lady and mm-hmm. Brick House. Right. And that's the kind of spectrum I wanted to have for our group. I thought we had that kind of range. And really being career-minded, you know, I put in that bid. And I said, man, he's an exclusive producer uh, uh, at Motown. He doesn't do anybody outside of Motown. And they're like, well, you asked me who I wanted. That's what I wanted. 
So uh, first album goes by, and a great guy came out from Philadelphia. I didn't get my wish, but Bobby Eli came out from, from Philly. He's uh, fresh out of love. He was MFSB, you know, and they were huge at that time. Of course. Did all of of those Teddy Pendergrass records and OJ's records and wrote Love Won't Let Me Wait and other hits. And they brought him out, and he did our first album, and we, we reached the charts, and we got the Soul Train, and we, we got an opening for, um, for Richard Pryor and Chaka Khan and... Uh, um, a few others I can't remember. Uh, and so we got off to a great start. Then the second album came and it didn't do so well. Well, by the third album, who shows up in White Plains, New York, our hometown, actually Greenberg, New York, was James Carmichael. He showed up after, and we had to wait. I remember we had to wait a long time because they had to wait for the Commodores to finish their record before he, had, he could come. Uh, across country and and um, and work with us. We had a we had our own studio in Mount Vernon, New York, where we are, you know Diddy is from and Denzel is from. We had we we bought a studio there, a rehearsal studio there, and uh, he came in, and in one day, he changed our sound. And well, our, what did he do? What, what did he do in one day, Port? How do you describe what he did? We to were, he he laid us back. We had so much angst, you know, and at the time, I listened to music, I, I, just, I was just listening, my wife and I were just listening to the Midnight Special thing. We got that, that box set with all mm-hmm. the concerts there, and everything was fast. Everybody was playing fast at that time, you know, for whatever reason, right? The disco influence or whatever. Well, James came in, and he said, gentlemen, just relax. And in our, I don't know, he just set this tone. It's like a great coach, you know, like a Tony Dungy kind of coach, you know. Right, I right. I was that kind of, you know, it's like, you run through a wall for this guy. Now, other coaches are like, no, no, got to da 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 You run through a wall for him, yes. But this guy could speak in a completely, in a, with a complete 180, in a very calm way, and you'll run through the wall for that guy. That's what he did with us. And David Lewis, our guitar player, went to the keyboard. We had a Prophet 5. We had just gotten one of those. And he just hit two chords, boom, boom. And I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. It's like the whole world. I went into, I went into a groove. Our bass player, Clifford Archer, went into it, you know, kind of followed along. We all mm-hmm. followed along with this groove. And James shaped this, this jam session, actually, into what became a song called One Love Call. And that turned out to be our groundbreaking song. That, that brought us into actually the big time, really. Yeah. It was an R&B, you know, top 10 R&B tune. And again, we're back on Soul Train, but in a different way. You could tell things were different. Uh, and we headed out on, on a big tour with, uh, with Rick James. And he had done Super Freak at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and we were opening for him, and we were for the cameo. Uh, and, we, we, you know, we traveled the country with those guys, you know, on the strength of this song. And we got a couple other ballads. Uh, Sam Dees and uh, Ron Kersey submitted a couple of songs for us. Uh, we had a song called, um, it was one called Am I Dreaming? And another one, uh, Send For Me. So we came out of the box with this album called Radiant that really put us on the R&B scene. We, we, became, we were instantly compared to... Uh, Rufus and Chaka Khan, actually. So you see from the Chicago thing, then we had the Philadelphia thing with Bobby Eli, and now we're being instantly compared to Rufus and Chaka Khan because my cousin Sharon Bryant is, is a great singer. And uh, we really featured her 
and all of this, and it completely reshaped our lives, and obviously uh, jump-started our career, and we were off and running. We had, uh, I think it was five, five top ten R&B albums in a row after that, and then the, and the last two of those five on pop, I had left the band just prior to those, those pop records. But I had a really nice run for five albums with the guys uh, before I left. Well, it's again, the band legacy, I think, is so interesting and so important that in that period in music, I mean, Atlantic Star really occupied a really special place uh, on the R&B charts. And you were just the band as a group, which is so flexible and, and, and interesting and, and just brought so many different kinds of, uh, of things to the party. I think that's, you know, what, what makes it so memorable. Those records, I think, hold up beautifully today. Uh, I, I really do. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny, you, you left on your own terms, obviously, right? I mean, it wasn't like you made your decision and then you went on to to begin writing and doing lots of other things. What I want to do next, we're going to go to a break in a second, but what I want to do now is we've talked about some some Daryl Hall and John Oates. We've talked Atlantic Star. I had the privilege of seeing you perform at Daryl Hall's place, um, live from Daryl's house. Daryl's house is the venue, obviously, up in Pauling. Great venue. And a number of years ago, you started putting together your own show whereby you were taking um, classic songs, standards and things, which we'll talk about after the break, and sort of redefining them and reinventing them in a way that really made them uh, your own, and and obviously the the reaction was was wonderful and and swift. People loved this. I'll never forget the the night I saw you perform up there, and just how you you just had the place in the palm of your hand the whole time. We're going to get to that in a minute. I'm talking with Porter Carroll Jr. I'm Chris Septing. This is the moment, and we'll be right back in just a moment. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america you are listening to the moment with chris epting if you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to chris at chris that's chris at chris now, back to The Moment. 
thoroughly enjoying hearing about the moments from Porter Carroll Jr.'s life. Porter, we've talked about Daryl Hall and John Oss. We've talked a little bit about Atlantic Star. I, I started talking before the break about seeing you perform at Daryl's house, the club up in Pauling, um, on a night a number of years ago where you were beginning to get this, this act together, which celebrated sort of the beauty and intimacy of cabaret, but there was there's a, a twist to it. Why don't you describe this concept of what you started doing then and how it's evolved up until today? Wow, you saw it in its baby stages, and you know. It's I did. That was an early uh, yeah. one, but, but you knew yeah, yeah. you knew seeing it that it was going to connect with people because again, the songs that you were doing are part of the great American canon. Yet you were doing them in a different way. You you again, you were you were deconstructing them in a way and filtering it through your own love of, of, of R and B and soul. So describe for people like what I saw back then and, and what's happened to it today. Well, um. It, it started out as uh, talking about a duo, talking about John and Darrell. It started out as a duo with uh, my dear friend, uh, Wally Mohammed. Mm-hmm. He uh, kind of got me out of mothballs, actually, you know, in another way, just prior to, to, to joining Hall and Oates. He, he, he wanted to just do a duo. We were just doing a, this little coffee shop uh, in, uh, in Larchmont, New York. And, and he said, you know, let's, let's add a couple of, couple of uh, musicians. So we added a keyboard player and bass player. And, um, and a drummer. And I said, you know what? Hey, well, we, between the two of us, he, he has this great ability to reshape. You know, he's a great arranger, right? And it turns out, you know, it turns out we have so much in common. Our, 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 our references were so much the same that we started to, I mean, when you think about rap music, how, you know, you could, t- like Puffy took every breath you take, you know, from Sting and, 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 and Police, and then put, Puffy's tribute, uh, you know, on it, he, um, the, the, the right. tribute to, to Biggie on it, you know, and, and you, saw, you saw it with uh, Good Times and uh, Hotel, Motel, Holiday Inn, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with Rapper's Delight, you know, so sort of, and then everything is about reinventing and, you know, the whole theme of our world now is, is that, and then on top of that, as far as the space to go into, I noticed from going out with my wife in different places, the cabaret room was now being patronized by people who are our age. It wasn't the traditional, you know, um, Ethel Merman kind of Robert Goulet, uh, right, right. Liza Minnelli crowd anymore. These were people who grew up with the same kind of music that we did, but they just happened to go these spaces, not taking anything away from the traditional cabaret uh, genre at all. It was like, what if we try to, just kind of infuse it with something, put popular music from our day, what would happen? So it allowed us, it, it had this, it gave us this big, big kind of, uh, kind of canvas to work from. So we started uh, doing what I guess you, can, you would describe as mashups, you know, but we wouldn't necessarily mash up a whole song. We might do a section here or there. So anyway, after a while, it turned into, I remember a friend of ours saw us and said, wait a minute, man, this is a show. You know? So I was like, okay, it gave us the confidence kind of, you know, take it to the next level. And sure enough, Daryl invited us to come to his club because he was just opening up and he needed some acts early on before they mm-hmm. kind of got rolling. So when, by the time you came up, you saw us really, uh, it might have been the first or second time that we, we, we went into that club and really tried it out in front of an audience where it was staged like a real nightclub act. And, right. uh, and you... Uh, both his beautiful piece and, and put it on the composed and all that gave us all that gave us confidence. And then on top of that, I remember when Daryl saw it 
He said, man, you have to take this to the next level. I said, really? You really think it's love it? He said, man, this is excellent. And we started getting all this, this feedback. So it gave both Lolly and I all of this confidence to really let's dig deeper into our, into our sort of um, uh, our background, music background. So we started pulling from everywhere, you know, and that people just wouldn't expect us to do Wichita Lyman. Which you tell Lyman, it's funny. I was just going to mention that one because that was the one that to me was the biggest curveball. And I remember you telling me before that you did it. And I was really curious how that was going to be. And then when you did it, it was I, that's the one that really stood out to me because that was kind of the wild card. What 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 are you going to do with Wichita Lineman? And and what yeah. you did was was again was exquisite. And what are some of the uh, talk about some of the other you know cuts in the set list that night? Because again, it was very diverse and really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mention what else we were doing back then. Yeah, we would do. I, I mean, we did. Uh, we had an arrangement of Angel, Jimi Hendrix. Right. We did it right. you know, really, really. I don't know, kind of a haunting, you know, way. Um, um, oh gosh, what were we doing? We were doing Simon Garfunkel piece. Uh, yeah. Fifty Ninth Street Bridge. We we're doing. Yeah, I think you did you Purple know? Rain too, didn't you? And we did it. We, we yeah, that's. Pretty much the close. I remember people saying, "Yeah, you can't. You can never take that out of the show." We're like, "Oh man!" But yeah, it, it turns out to be you know a closer for us. Um, and again, it's it, it, you sort of have to see it, you know, um, because it, it's so many twists and turns. You know, like now we we have a version of Magic Carpet that I really really like. It has some African rhythms and uh, and, and, and Miles Davis Miles Davis infusion. I'm like, so what? You know, so we, we go all over the all over the map. Here's the thing. And so what you've done, what I think the show did, and as you moved into New York City and it became a sort of a redefinition of the classic cabaret experience, you know, tapping into the memories people had that a lot of baby boomers had of songs they had embraced when they were younger. So, and you're playing those back to people in a way that, again, is rearranged and, 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 and performed differently. But there's enough of it there that people can hold on to. But enough of what you bring to it as Porter. Carol Porter Carroll Jr. that really made it special. And I think that's why it works is that it's, look, there are plenty of song interpreters that people know and love for whether it's Frank Sinatra or Linda Ronstadt that do fairly tried, you know, and true versions of songs. I think what caught people off guard was the fact that you weren't afraid to take a few liberties and, and mm-hmm, yeah. find those pieces of melody that maybe weren't explored as heavily in the original versions um, there were just so many little different things you touched upon that made the songs not just familiar again, but also seem sort of new. Yeah, I, I call it a baby boomer special. And it's also a hoot man <laughs> because people say, you know, I could play, I just pick the mic out, I don't have to say anything, and they'll sing the choruses. Because I never, right. never, I never veer too far away from the original melodies of the song. Right. What's going on around that melody, yes, we take in liberty, but not too far, you know. Um, but the, even those things that the, even the references that we use, they'll say, "Wait a minute, I know that too." So the music yeah. has changed, but it's something they they're familiar with, and right, it seems to right, keep right. people engaged. And by the time the hour the hour and a half is, is over, we we get um, we get really nice responses. Porter, the, obviously really the world is crazy that. right now. There aren't a lot of performances, but you were, you know, finding a groove with this in between all the Daryl Hall and John Oates work. When things do get back to normal, where are things at? I mean, you've still got the act, you've developed it um, even further than when I saw it, obviously. So what can people expect once things resume? Well, you know, it's what we were like so many of us, uh, we we're all looking forward to a big year, now, obviously with John and Daryl, you know, with the, with the big mm-hmm. tour with Squeeze. 
Um, but when that was over in the fall, we were taking, I was taking uh, 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 the show into Canada, you know, um, uh, and we were really excited about that. I was just about to sign the paperwork for that to go in. Yeah. Um, I, I can't really say exactly where it was going to be, but it was, it was gonna, I, I like to think it was going to be a big step up. And then there was this other thing that was touched on. Um, 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 we're, we're going back into the city. Uh, we're probably going to go back into uh, 54 Below, Michael Feinstein's place. Right. Um, and had plans for other things. We just started talking to, uh, to a couple of agents that were very interested. So um, once we come off the pause button, we're really looking forward to just taking the next step up. Well, it's and really then, look, it's uh, really easy. Yeah, I I think it's so easy to imagine you sort of, especially in New York. I know this would play in many other cities, but when you think about assuming the mantle of like Bobby Short at the Carlisle, of like Michael yeah. Feinstein, there is a great legacy in New York for a show like this that that becomes just that must see that residency show that when it rolls in, everybody makes their plans, and it's to me it really has that flavor, and I I really believe that's what's going to happen once things get back to normal and all because again the show is just so compelling and so entertaining and so uh it's it's educational you know there's just you learn you learn a lot about music in in, in throughout the course of the show but it's just so engaging and uh you know again thankfully you've you've got you know what you know what the show is now you just got to get back to when people can go out and enjoy it again which will happen of course yeah, and we're really looking forward to that. I, I just had to interject. Uh, a gentleman approached us after the last show that we did at Darrell's just before, uh, well, Valentine's Day. I was going to have the Valentine's Day uh, residency there. For the, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it was a music professor that came up afterwards. I, I never saw this man before in my life. He said, that was a master class. And I said, whoa, okay. You know? Well, um, listen, and you know, I, I, that... I, 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 um, I'm speechless now. I said, okay. You know, that's, I, um, I was really taken by that, and I was really so glad that he felt. And when you mentioned educational. Uh, well, it is. Really well, no, again, when you consider where, where you've been and what you've done and all the experience you've amassed over the years, I mean, again, people are getting, when they see you, you know, they're getting those Atlantic star years and what you learn then. They're getting the stuff with Daryl and John. They're getting sort of a little bit of everything you've been through and how you're applying it to these songs. So it's, uh, I know it's exciting. If you were, Porter, where can people learn more about it or follow you? I mean, what's the best place to go check out what you're well, doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram, um, um, and I do have a website. Uh, and when everything is up and running, we'll we'll keep it all updated. So, just Porter Car- is it PorterCarrollJr.com? Yes, PorterCarrollJr.com is the website, and you know, Facebook you just look me up under Porter Carroll Jr. and IG is the real Porter Carroll Jr. Uh, so that's trying to come in my house. <laughs> well, listen. Um, Porter, we started this show talking about how you met Daryl. Why don't we close out? We've got about five minutes here. So why don't we close out with how you met John Oates? Because, again, I know these guys mean a lot to you. Um, you've all done amazing work together. What's the story behind the first time you met John Oates? As I said, you know, I was out of work for a long time. I was really, really nervous about where my life was going to go. You know, and like I said, this call comes from Daryl. It's great. And, you know, um, it sort of like came down from the sky kind of thing, you know, like I was being watched over to it. And, um, and sure enough, uh, we, we, I did the first show, a couple of shows with Daryl's TV show. Then we we went on a 10-day tour with just Daryl's show. 
Right. So I kind of got my feet wet with that. And then they said, I remember the guy said, hey, man, you know, but you, you know, Hall and Oates is coming. You know, I was like, yeah, cool, you know. <laughs> so shortly after that, we got a phone call. I think it was in, well, I know exactly when it was, at the, at the end of April. It's okay, guys, you're going to be flown out to to uh, Los Angeles to do the grand finale of The Voice. I was like, oh, wow, great, you know. Um, so we, we, we get out, and we, I remember we left the dressing room, and we were walking across the, I think it was on the Warner Brothers lot. I'm not sure, one mm-hmm. of the, one of the lots in Burbank. And we're just walking towards the sound stage to where they do the show, and somebody walks up next to my left and says, hey, man, how you doing? Where, where are you from? I look over <laughs> I tell him where I'm from. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I know that restaurant. And I said, right next to him, so, 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 so. you live right next door to that? And I said, yeah. And it was John Oates. But literally walking to the soundstage uh, to film the grand finale of The Voice. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And it was so casual. You know, and it wasn't like, hey, man, I'm, so, I'm sure you know who he is, you know. But it was really, really easy. And I, wow. the two of us just walked into the into the place like he knew me for ten years, you know. Um, and that's and really our, our relationship has grown from there. We're very very close, all all the time, you know. And um, it was really nice. And I thought about it, and I said, "Wow, that's John." Yeah, I think I think that that that. Yeah, I mean that's him. That's John. He's uh, loose and approachable, and. Uh, yeah. You know, again, like I remember the first time I met you with John and, um, you know, you and I sat by each other and had a great conversation. But I look, Porter, we'll, we'll have to do more of this again. You um, sure. there's a lot more to talk about. Everyone go to PorterCarrollJr.com. Check out what he's doing. Porter on his own is, is an amazing artist and certainly within the context of Daryl Hall and John Oates brings a lot to the party. He's thoroughly entertaining. The whole band is. I just want to close and say, Porter, I think one of the most fun things about that particular show is just how great the band is. And uh-huh. you can watch anybody in that band through any part of the show and there's something cool going on. You know, everybody is well, like, I, you, you uh, know what I mean? Um, Oh yeah, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I yeah. just had to say before you cut off, it's it's quite a privilege to be a part of one of the best bands in the world. You know, that's where I feel whenever we go out. It's one of the greatest bands in the world right now. You know, it's like flipping a switch and, and it's greatness. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm getting, listen, I'm, I'm ready for a show. It's been way too long and we almost <sighs> had one out here before all this hit. So hopefully we'll do it together soon. But Porter Carroll, I want to thank you very much for you being my guest here on the moment. You're a great storyteller. You've got many moments that could fill many hours and we'll get back and do this again. And uh, it's good to hear your voice again, man. And likewise, Chris, and thank you so much for having me, man. We'll see each other soon. My pleasure, buddy. Thanks. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.